Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. All right, welcome to episode number 36 of the Fish Untamed podcast. Today, I got a chance to sit down with Steve Angel, who is the host of the Traditional Outdoors podcast, which I was a guest on uh, about a year ago, I think. And it covers fly fishing, traditional bow hunting, and other similar outdoor pursuits. In this episode, Steve and I talk mostly about what he values in these more traditional outdoor activities and some of the more impactful moments he's had outside. So with that, we can hop over to my chat with Steve Angel. All right, I am sitting down today with Steve Angel with the Traditional Outdoors podcast. How are we doing today, Steve? You know what? Can't complain. <laughs> um, as my as my my buddy, now now buddy and and recent guest said, you know, um it's a day above the grass and they're all good. So There you go. <laughs> have you been have you been getting out in the water much? Not on, well, we're obviously, so we're already into um, hunting season. So what time I have right now is pretty much focused on, on the, the whitetail woods, but uh, did get out some over the, over the summer and, and we'll probably get out some more again later this fall. And then once we get into uh, January and February, I tend to do a lot of postseason scouting and fly fishing at the same time. That's interesting because I feel like January and February is usually so cold here that I'm not I'm not thinking about fishing too much then. But I guess where you are, that's probably pretty nice weather. It so it can be. Um, I will tell you that, and it's one of those situations I don't get to do often. But one of my absolute favorite um, fly fishing memories of the last I don't know ten or fifteen years. We had a, a cold front move through 
it's been 10 years ago or more. Um, I happened to be, I don't, it was during the week, and for some reason I had the ability uh, to take the day off of work, and we had a snowstorm, and I headed up into the North Georgia mountains. It wasn't a whiteout, of, you know, like a blizzard or anything, but um, I actually got out and, and caught some fish, and it was cold enough in Georgia that I actually had to stop every now and then and clean the the ice out of my, my guides and managed to catch a few fish, and there was just nothing more beautiful to me than then taking some pictures of a few trout, you know, laying on the snow and then slipping them back into the water. But it was just a just a great day and not something I get to experience often. Yeah, and those snow days are usually pretty nice because you're often the only person out there too. So you get get to experience that winter wonderland, but you know, totally totally in solitude. It's funny how much different the the rippling of the water sounds when everything's blanketed in snow and absorbs all the other sounds and noises you mm-hmm. you definitely feel a lot closer to the environment in those situations i agree there's something you know same with if you're hunting in in woods full of snow and when the wind dies down and it just feels so everything's so muffled that i don't know it's, it's just such a peaceful moment and, and you don't really hear anything you can just you, you're hearing your own thoughts almost and in some cases it's almost like you can hear your own heartbeat echoing mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really cool i, I agree now, when you guys get snowstorms down in Georgia, is, is that one of those situations where the state kind of shuts down and you hear about people getting stranded on the highway, or where you are, is, are they do they handle it pretty well? Oh no, it's 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 bad as far as yeah, yeah. I mean, and we you know we're the brunt of a lot of uh, a lot of jokes because you know it can be a dusting of snow and they close everything down. Um, but a lot of us still do get out. I mean, you know, I grew up, I grew up in, you know, north central North Carolina. So uh, a lot more familiar with getting out on the roads and driving. And I don't, I actually don't worry about myself as much as I do the other people. So as long as the other people are off the roads, I, I pretty much go as I, as I want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So t- tell me about your upbringing a little bit. Cause um, I, I, I know some people may have heard it, but I was on your podcast recently, so I was doing all the talking, but I didn't get to hear much about your background and how you got your start uh, in the outdoors or, or fishing specifically. Sure. And yeah, I was looking at that. I think we were chatting about it a little bit before we pressed record, but it's been a little over a year since you were uh, on our podcast. You were, I think, episode 62 or something like that. But uh, yeah, my you know, it's funny. My, my background story as far as the outdoors is a I see it as a bit unique. Um, no one in my family really hunted. It just wasn't. It wasn't something we did. I grew up on a on a farm. It was a tobacco farm. We we did raise uh, small grains and had some cows and those kind of things. But the, the primary cash crop was tobacco, and you know that was that was a lot of our our life. You know, day in and day out. If we weren't actually working in the crops, we were. Uh, repairing equipment and doing things over the winter to get ready for the next year. Uh, and my dad was just a, uh, that's, I mean, the farming wasn't just his, his job or his career. It was his passion. And, you know, to him, he would just, he would, he would be happier doing something related to the farm than just about anything else. But I had a strong desire to spend time in the outdoors from a very early age outside of just the work. Um, and my mother, my mother liked to fish a little bit and, you know, she would, she would take us fishing. I'd go fishing with her. But even when that wasn't an option, I mean, I can remember me and my brother making our own, uh, uh, 
fishing rods out of saplings and links of fishing twine and actually using even sewing needles and bending them oh, fun. at some times to you know to catch fish out of we had a small stream that ran behind our house uh and then the hunting thing was kind of the same way i just i kept pushing my my father he finally bought bought me my first bow when i was 16 and i just I, you know i jumped in with both feet and learned a lot of really hard lessons the hard way but i tried to learn from every mistake and over time i i kind of got pretty you know there wasn't google back in those days you just got out and you you tried to learn from um from your surroundings and your mistakes and I guess that, I mean, that's really about it. I mean, it's it's something that I've had since as long as I can remember. I remember reading a lot of magazines like Fur Fishing Game and Outdoor Life and Field and Stream and those kind of things and learned as much as I could from there. And that was that was the bulk of where I, I got my information from. You know, it's funny you bring up the fact that, you know, back, back then you didn't have the same resources you have now um, because we have so many, so many resources available now, be it print or video online podcasts but i still find that it's it's pretty incredible how much more you can learn in you know just a day or two of doing something than you can in hours of of consuming content like that um i just feel like there's really no substitute for getting out and just giving it a try and messing up and and seeing where you mess up and learning from that uh you can feel so equipped to go do something after like reading about it for for hours and then you go out and i feel like you, it all just gets thrown out the window and, and you just start learning things on the fly and it's i don't know it's just in some ways it's really really different and in some ways i feel like it'll kind of always be that way where you really need to just get your hands in the dirt and and do it and you know i, w- I definitely would agree i think you know looking back i would have definitely loved to have had um especially on the hunting aspect, a a mentor to kind of show me things and teach me things. And probably that's a big driver in why I do the podcast and and why I do, you know, some of the YouTube videos, which I've got to get, (laughs) I've got to get better at at adding content to YouTube. But you can, you know, you can learn a lot from other people through those sorts of, of medium, but there's always going to be that, that gap of understanding what you're hearing and applying it directly to your hunting scenario or your, you know, the streams that you fish. I mean, nothing beats experience. And, you know, you, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people that, that don't have those, uh, those mentors or someone to, uh, to show them the rope, so to speak, the best thing you can do is just get out there and give it a shot. I mean, try the things you know, but learn from the things that you you either don't fully understand or that you're completely wrong about and learn how to learn how to adapt and adjust. Yeah, and I feel like that's especially the case with something like fishing. I, I feel like one could make the argument that for hunting, especially with bow hunting, that you want to have a, a decent base of knowledge before you go out because you do have the potential to um, wound an animal and no one wants to do that. But for something like fishing, I feel like there's really no downside to going out and giving it a try. I think there's a kind of a barrier to entry where people are a little worried about going and and just being terrible at casting, especially for something like fly fishing. But, you know, what's the worst that happens if you go out and are are absolutely terrible? Everyone's terrible the first time they go out. Um, So for something like that, I just feel like there's there's really no reason not to to go try it and just mess up and learn. I would definitely agree. I would say... um you know, depending on, and this is something I'll be honest, is probably something I should still, even today, do myself. 
but I would recommend anyone, you know, find someone that's willing to, or even if you have to pay a little for it, you know, find an instructor that can teach you um, at least the basics around fly casting. I, I'll be honest, I learned that just the way I did everything else. I learned it through reading magazines and, and you know, casting by the uh, the clock, the, you know, 10 to 1, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And and I learned with the most horrible, horrendous fly rod and reel combination you could probably buy at the time. But it's what I had. And, you know, today, and I've said this many times, I've said this on, on my own podcast uh, you know, I, I'm a I'm a fly caster that can I can slap water with the best of them because I make mistakes, but I catch fish and uh, you know I, I I feel like I do okay for the most part until I'm around someone that really knows what they're doing and I you know that, there's definitely an example and we were talking about that a little bit before the before we started recording there's there's one example I can give you for that but um. Fly fishing is something that it, it is it is extremely simple. Lefty Cray can break it down better than anybody, I think, um, you know, as far as watching or listening to somebody online. And he's no longer with us, but that man was just amazing to watch with a fly rod. And he, you know, he took a very simple approach to fly casting, but it works. But mm-hmm. trying to go out there and just, you know, learn that on your own without any instruction it can be frustrating. So if you go that path, you just have to, you have to stick with it. You have to figure out you're probably going to replace at least one spool of fly line because you're going to destroy it on the grass and so forth, (laughs) trying to learn. But um, anybody that came up and just asked me, I would definitely say, try to find someone that is either, you know, they're really good at fly fishing or even pay an instructor to learn how to cast uh, because it can save a lot of frustration. Absolutely. I know there's a lot of, a lot of fly shops, I think, even do, you know, free classes with the with the idea that if you pick it up and like it, then you probably come to their fly shop and, and buy some things later. So it's probably not too hard to find a, uh, a free or at least really affordable class to take. Uh, even like 30 minutes of instruction can make such a huge difference. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, the only thing I would I would add to that from my experience um is if you are looking to find an instructor, and especially if it's um, if it's tied to a a, a fly shop, and I'll, I'm not going to get into brands or names, but I have seen good and I have seen bad. Uh, I will tell you, uh, it, depending on your area, find a, a local forum or something where you can go out and ask questions, and you know, find somebody that that does come highly recommended. Um, it was funny. I was listening to, I'll forget the gentleman's name. There was a, a an episode that you did very early on and it was a gentleman because I actually thought I need to reach out Katie and see if she has his contact information. But he, he, he's, um, trying to find, he was trying to catalog all the streams in North Georgia that held native brook trout or Oh yeah. That's something Palmer Henson. That. Palmer I can definitely Henson. hook you up with him. Exactly right. And he was talking about the fish hawk. And one of my, um, a real good friend of mine actually uh, works at the Fish Hawk. To my knowledge, he still works there, provided, you know, this this whole COVID situation hasn't hasn't impacted his, his job. He works at the Fish Hawk. His name is Rob Smith and one of the absolute best uh, people to try to teach somebody how to fly fish. He, he, he does some guiding and so forth and just a, a fantastic individual. 
that I would recommend to anyone. Um, but again, there's some shops that I've gone into where I might just go in to look at a rod, and the next thing I know, they're they're wanting me to get out in the in the parking lot and cast, and then they're trying to you know give me pointers, and I'm like, look, you're you're breathing down my neck. I need to, I can't <laughs> I can't even think and focus on what this rod feels like. So I just you know I would say you know try to find somebody that has um, a good reputation for uh, teaching others how to fly fish or fly cast. For sure. And it, it might, like you said, kind of come down to a little bit to personal style. Um, there's obviously some people who are, are just fantastic teachers and other people who um, may be great casters, but they just struggle with the teaching. But, um, you know, you like you said, you don't want someone breathing down your neck. And I would feel the same way. I'm like, let me just go out by myself and, and see how this feels. But other people might really want that, um, that extra... I don't know, attention while they're, while they're casting to get pointers. So also just kind of shopping around until you find someone who, who just feels right for, for you if you're, if you're trying to learn or buy a fly rod. What, um, I wanted to also ask you in addition to like your start in the outdoors, uh, at what point did you kind of transition over to focusing on, um, the traditional outdoors? That's your podcast and that's kind of your sole focus, um, kind of centered around fly fishing and bow hunting, um, it, and also, like, what do you consider to be the traditional outdoors? Okay, so we we could probably end up spending another 30 or 40 minutes just talking about this one topic. Uh, <laughs> oh, we've got time. So, for me, traditional, traditional is more about um, attitude, I guess, than anything else. I am a traditional only bow hunter. I've I've only hunted with traditional archery equipment for uh, going on 20 years now. I'd have to sit down and look at some some notes to tell you exactly how many years. But uh, when I started traditional outdoors, um, and actually I built a website for a lo- a couple of months before I launched the podcast. Kind of knew where I was going, but I wanted to uh, get the the website format like I wanted it, and really really identify what I wanted the podcast to be about. And and we've tried to stick to it. We may stray here and there a little bit, but traditional outdoors is not about traditional bow hunting. It's not about traditional archery. It's really more about um, what I consider traditional values related to spending time in the outdoors. And I've been asked this multiple times but for me it's it's a lot of things you know we could we could talk about ethics we could talk about morals we could talk about the golden rule when you're when you're in the outdoors but the biggest thing for me is to lose yourself in the outdoors and the biggest thing you can take um, with you when you leave the stream when you leave the woods are the experiences that you had during that outdoor activity, where it's hunting, whether it's fishing, it all comes down to focusing on the things that really matter. And again, what's going to build those lasting memories. And that's not always going to be the quantity or the quality of the animal or the fish, the animal that you you harvested or the fish that you landed. There's so many other things. And We've had guests on everything from outdoor cooking to camping to black powder to, you know, uh, traditional bow hunting, obviously a lot of those, fly fishing, uh, wing shooting. I mean, you just name it. We've had a lot of different guests, 
but the common core there is or the common trait is it's all about the experience and I, I that's the best way I can explain it and again we could talk about some other things again with the you know the traditional values and the ethics and the morals and um, but really that's what it comes down to to me I think that's what's re- what really drew me in to your podcast initially was your kind of your attitude around it. Um, you know, I, I subscribed to, I don't know, over a dozen fly fishing podcasts. So it wasn't really that I needed to add another fly fishing podcast or, or hunting podcast for that matter to my subscription list. But your show had a different feel to it when I first listened to it. And that's what kept me coming back. And actually, um, you had one episode... I don't remember how long ago it was. I think it was after I came on, so it must have been in the last year. But you were just sitting around with um, a couple people, like a roundtable discussion where you were just sharing um, kind of your favorite hunting stories. And I remember re- or, uh, right after I listened to that, someone actually came on Instagram and was saying, you know, I'm so sick of just hearing, you know, boring podcasts with just, you know, listing off tips. And I just I just want to hear a podcast with a good story. Does anyone have anything to recommend? And I sent over that podcast episode of yours and I was like, you should definitely check this out. And I remember one of the stories was just, it was like a doe hunt. And I'm not even sure if you, if you even harvested that doe um, or whoever was telling the story, but um, it was, it was just notable to me that a story about a doe hunt that was possibly unsuccessful was, was um, memorable enough for me to like want to recommend it to somebody later when they were looking for a good story. Um, and that's the kind of thing I think more and more people are getting into is, is just the whole atmosphere and experience of these things. Like it, it doesn't really matter what the outcome is. Um, it, it matters what you took from it and what you remembered from it. Uh, and I think a lot of people are appreciating that when they're outdoors now too. Um, so I, I definitely really appreciate hearing those values on your show. Well, and, and I do appreciate that. And I'm almost positive that I don't know I don't know remember the episode number I do know I do know the episode that you're talking about and I think that was me and Tom and and Nick were all on that, mm-hmm. that uh, episode right. um and I'll tell you, you 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 may not and I don't even remember if I covered this on on the podcast but I know exactly which hunt you're talking about uh I have written about that that uh that hunt which lasted almost the full the full season and just so people that are listening to your show and that kind of knows what we're talking about here, I won't walk through the whole thing, but you can definitely find it if you want to. Uh, the article that was written was called "A Hunter Would Only a Hunter Would Understand," and I played a cat and mouse game over the course of an archery season with this wise, mature doe. Um, it seemed no matter what I did, she was a step ahead of me. And as a traditional bow hunter, you got to understand it's a it's a it's an up close and personal game. I mean, it's, I, I rarely will take a shot over 15 yards. I won't, I won't, you know, everything to be up close and personal for multiple reasons, but this doe just gave me the hardest time. And towards the end of the season, I actually used a tactic that I've used maybe twice in my life. And some will get a chuckle out of this because it is, I'll be honest, it's a bit disgusting, but the area that I was hunting this animal um, was using a very, it was using a, a triangle shaped uh, block of pines, very thick cover to move from some hardwoods just before daylight to some very thick cover um, right after, right after shooting light started. 
So what I did was I actually, after playing this game of Cat and Mouse, I took a week's supply of work socks that I had been wearing to work that I had kept in a Ziploc bag. And when I parked my vehicle, I got out and I started hanging those over limbs along the edge of that uh, stand of pines, which bordered up a, a road. Um, with the idea that with the way the wind was blowing, that animal was going to smell that, and I was fairly confident I knew the route she would take to avoid what she thought was humans. And I set up that morning, and just after daylight, I caught movement, and sure enough, she was using the exact trail that I thought she would use to try to circumvent what she thought was a, a hunter posted along the road. And she showed up at uh, 15 yards and I had my bow up and I started to pull the string and I sat there and I followed her till she passed me at 10 yards and then as she was at 12 yards again and out to 15 and then I realized I just had never I can't remember if I never drew the bow or if I if I I think I drew the bow at some point and when I realized what I was doing I'd already let the bow down and she had beat me and I couldn't bring myself to end um, to end that game, to end that chase with that animal, feeling like I had cheated her. And I was telling my wife that night about that story, and she, she said, you mean you? I've heard about this the whole season, and the moment of truth came, and you, you, couldn't, you couldn't shoot that animal. And I said, only a hunter would understand. And anyway... That became a that became an article, and I'm pretty sure that's the story that you're remembering. You can tell me if I'm off. That, there, no, that but. is absolutely the story I was remembering. I had forgotten the part that you had basically passed on her. I just I remembered it as just an unsuccessful hunt, but I I was remembering. Oh, it, it wrong. was successful. Right, it was right. successful <laughs> in 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 every in every part of being successful. To me, it was a success. Absolutely, uh, and I honestly I think for me the biggest success was accepting. Uh, accepting defeat in one way, but winning in the fact that I I let her walk and I kept I'll keep that memory f- for the rest of my life. Right, and that's that's the kind of episode that when someone was saying I just I need something you know interesting and powerful to listen to, not just the same old ramblings about um, you know what what's the next best bow and and this and that. That I right. was like, this is the episode you're looking for. I can guarantee it. Um, so that's that's the kind of you know obviously I've been listening to your show for a while when that came out but that's the kind of thing that that drew me in because the you know even if you weren't talking about that story the type of person that has a story like that and and has that experience um, that that spills over into the rest of of what I hear from you if you and Nick as well um, is that kind of feeling and that's the kind of thing that I feel like a lot of us are chasing when we go out is that is that feeling right there where like you said, only a hunter, or only an angler would understand. Do you have any um, stories? Obviously, it's not really the same realm, but do you have any stories that are that impactful for you um, on the river too? Um, I'm sure. Well, I, I I know I do. I would say maybe not necessarily to that level, but uh, along the same lines. You know, like I said, I grew up was not in a uh, when I say an outdoor family just didn't spend a lot of time in the outdoors except for work. <laughs> uh, but trout fishing was one of those things when I was growing up I did not have access to. I grew up in the Piedmont of North Carolina. 
Um, we had, you know, we had bass, bass lakes, we had panfish, but we just didn't have trout. So obviously, you know, for a, a, a young, a young kid that really enjoys being outdoors, whatever you don't have access to is always going to be the most alluring, mm-hmm. um, which could also be another discussion around my trip, um, to hunt antelope. But anyway, uh, that was just something I always wanted to do. And I guess when I was about 16, uh, my father up and and packed up our our, our truck. I think it was a Bronco at the time, and and carried me and my brother up into the mountains of North Carolina, which uh, was about an eight hour drive for us. It was again we didn't ha- he didn't have any idea other than some coworkers had kind of pointed him where to go. And I remember we we pulled into the the area that we were going to fish. Uh, around midnight that night everybody was exhausted and we all just kind of crashed there in the in the bronco and i remember laying there all night listening to the the rush of that water which i'd never i'd never heard i'd never been enough in an area like that um to to listen and it was a pretty big stream and i i mean mean, it was it's a stream called santilla creek uh up in western north carolina uh listened to that all night got up the next morning couldn't wait you know, got out, got to fish. Didn't know, again, I could cast a fly rod, but uh, I would love to have video of how horrible it probably looked. But I can still tell you to this day, and if I close my eyes, I can visualize the first time it all went right. And, you know, that, that, that pretty sure it was a, an elk hair caddis hit the water and actually floated the way it was supposed to. And, I had enough slack in the in the leader that it I actually got a decent drift and I remember a big rainbow just smashing that and it was almost like I did, I didn't know what to do next but in my mind I can still see I can still see that that eddy I can still see that slick of water and I can still see that fish rising on that fly the first time so there's a lot of little stories like that over the years. Um, I can still, I could probably carry you to the exact place I caught my first uh, brook trout. Um, and I can still take you to the first stream and I actually caught native brooks out of. Um, and that was, uh, it was actually called Wildcat Branch. I know exactly where it's at to this day, although I've been told that that uh, due to some um, heavy flooding one year in the summer it pretty much destroyed that that native um that that native stream but anyway i if i thought about it more i could probably come up with a lot of them but you know that's just one that comes to mind do you find that in moments like that like in this story where the rainbow came up and and took your elk care where you have almost like a memory burned in of a couple seconds before it happened to a couple seconds after it happened and you can kind of just roll through it like you're you're scrubbing through an, a slow-mo video where you know you can just picture it so clearly and and not in even the same speed it happened you can you can picture at any moment during that i don't know let's say 10 second span um you could you could scrub through your memory just like you were uh, scrolling back and forth through a 10 second video in slow motion absolutely just don't ever tell my wife that because <laughs> i can walk in a grocery store and forget half of what she told me i needed <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, definitely. And not just, not just that. I mean, even, and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, we were talking about the, the hunter would understand there is, um, and I, here's, here's one thing I can tell you on that same, and I still visit that stream, 
I try to once a year. It's about only about a two-hour. Oddly enough, now I live in Georgia. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive. Um, and I still try to make it up there at least every couple of years. It's got a special place in my heart because, you know, my father was the first one that took me there. Um, me and my brother had quite a few adventures on that stream. But there's, a, there's an area where... The main part of that stream, and if you if you if you're not willing to actually get out and walk a good bit and get off the you know the forest service road that follows the stream, you would never know it exists. But the the stream splits, and there's two things about this about this split that that are important to me, and it's it's the areas that I I visit every time I go to this stream. Um, if you continue down the main branch. Uh, it comes to what we have always called the swimming hole. And the reason we call it that is it, it's a very large pool um, that has been there so long that it's, it's basically just a solid granite bottom for the most part. About a third of this, the, the width of this is large boulders that are underground, uh, always can catch trout there. But to the, the two-thirds of it, to the... Um, left side of the stream if you're if you're looking downstream there's a a quartz vein that runs through the full length of this this pool and it almost looks like a swimming lane so we always called it swimming hole but I always fish there and then feeding into that um into that pool on the the far side of the stream is where this where that branch broke off it makes one huge triangle or one huge loop and comes back into that the mainstream right there at this this swimming hole, so I always fish there. In fact, I've got pictures of every time I go with my my youngest daughter. I, I we always visit that spot and she fishes it. But if you cross over there and follow that that branch where it comes back in after it splits off, a couple hundred yards you come up to this additional pool that's just it's very slow. There's not a lot of water that's actually coming through this section, so it's it's very slow. It's gin clear, and there's always several very nice-sized trout in that pool. To this day, I've never been able to catch one of them. But I always go to that spot. I always you know, crawl on my hands and knees, and I can get a fly out there, and they will, they will inspect it. But to this day, and we're going on a probably a 20-year cycle at this point, and I've <laughs> never gotten one of them to take, but I always try. So I feel like those are some of the the most fun, even if you never catch them, just that, you know, it's it's always fun to catch a ton of fish, obviously, but if you walk up and, and they hit the first thing you throw on your first cast, it's over. It's, it's kind of like shooting something on your first day of the hunt. Um, you know, you're, you're so grateful to have gotten it, but you almost want it to last a little bit longer than that. And, and it sounds like you're kind of in the indefinite realm of, of who knows if it'll ever happen, but at least it'll keep you engaged. You know what? Every time I go to that stream, I will always try, and I, I I will always end up spending probably a half hour to an hour just sitting on uh, a, a large stone somewhere in that general area and never casting, but taking everything in. It's just it's one of those special places for me. Even though I've I, again, I've never pulled <laughs> I've never pulled a successfully pulled a fish out of that that little uh, pool, but I've always got to go. I've always got to go every time I'm up there. What What do you say that you get out of fly fishing? Um, I know you you mentioned the values, you know, for all these traditional outdoor activities. But if you had to 
put it into some sort of coherent thought is there is there something you can pinpoint for like what you get out of fly fishing in general or, or even like a specific day of fly fishing like what is your what is your intended goal to to get out of that uh so uh, yes i can answer that question but I, at the same time i want to be i want to be a little bit careful uh i have i've i've pretty much fished every way possible at some point in my life bait casting spin casting uh, open face, closed face, fly, you know, and fly rod. And for me, the spin casting and the bait casting, uh, there's, I, I don't know, for me, it feels like I'm, I'm less involved in the process. I don't know if that will make sense to many people or not, but it's almost, it's, it, it in some ways it's, it's somewhat like the traditional bow hunting. Uh, I just feel like the fly rod is much simpler from a tool perspective and much more reliant upon me to become one with that, that tool, one with that piece of equipment. And I just, I feel, I feel closer to it. I feel like I'm more in control than the other way around. Uh, although sometimes it doesn't always pan out that way, but that's kind of the reason it, it just appeals to me more. I just, I feel like, and that gets even gets into some of the reasons when we talked about this earlier, the, before we started recording the, you know, I've, I've started fishing a lot more with fiberglass rods again. Um, and even some of that even ties into it because if I'm fishing with a spinning rod, I'm casting, I'm reeling, I'm casting, I'm reeling. If I'm fishing with a fly rod, I'm discerning the tug of a fish compared to the the current in the water or maybe i'm de- trying to determine was that was that my nymph bouncing along a boulder or was that you know did a trout just pick that up and spit it out and I, those are all the kind of things that i don't have with other equipment that the fly rod just really appeals to me for I just feel I feel closer to what I'm doing when I'm fishing with a fly rod. I hope that answers your question. No, it did, and that's that's actually I don't want to say like a better answer than I was expecting, but I've I've never thought of it that way. Um, but you're you're definitely right. You know, it, I grew up fishing with you know, primarily lures. I never did um, much bait fishing, but I, I threw a ton of lures <laughs> growing up, and you know they are just so much more technologically advanced in terms of like you've got rattles you've you know they they dance through the water on their own you just you just have to pull them the lip makes them dive um and you don't have to do too much and I don't want to take away from from that style of fishing because I absolutely loved it growing up and I don't mean to take away from the skills still required to catch fish especially big fish um using gear like that but like you said, it's it's kind of casted out, and then a lot of the time, especially with lure fishing like that, the lure does a lot of the work for you, or something like a spinner where where it's buzzing through the water and and you just have to pull it back in. Um, and I never thought about it that way. Where yeah, with with something like a fly rod, it's such a simple piece of machinery. It's just a spool that you can reel in or out, and and you have to do basically everything else. You have to put the fly in the right spot. Um, with a more involved cast, you have to make the fly do anything it does, um, apart from, I guess, just sink straight down if you've got some weight on it. But that's about the only thing that it'll do um, without you. And even then, you have to kind of control the speed to let it sink at whatever rate you want. So there's just a lot more that you have to control. And I never really thought of it that way. But I mean, it's kind of the same thing with like bow hunting versus hunting with a gun too. Like you have to kind of 
participate more, if you will, um, to get it to go right. And you can't you can't rely as much on the equipment itself to get it done. Yes, to all of that. And I think for me, and, and I will say the same thing. I mean, I'm not, I, by what I said, please don't, anybody listening, take that I'm disparaging a, a spin fisherman or a bait caster uh, fisherman because there are definitely skills involved in that for people to be consistently successful. Okay, so I'm not I'm not trying to take away from that. And the same thing goes with the with the the hunting the way I do. There's there's a couple of reasons for me why the longbow uh, or recurve. I hunt some of the recurve, mostly longbow. Longbow is more appealing to me and it's just because it's it makes the entire process more uh more intimate. I mean, everything is a is is a game of of distance when you start um, limiting your your range uh, to you know fifteen twenty yards, uh, and it and I admit there's also an aspect of simplicity, no sights, no scope, no. I mean, there's for all intents and purposes, the bow I hunt with is a glorified stick with a string on it. I mean, that's all there is to it. Did you ever do any hunting with like a compound bow or, or do you do any hunting with like a muzzle loader? Cause I know you said like no scope and stuff and you know, at least you're in Colorado for muzzle loader season, you're not allowed to use a scope. It has to be open sites. Um, does that appeal to you at all? Or is it, is it strictly the, the traditional bow itself? So, uh, I'm probably one of the oldest podcasters out there right now and probably one of the, <laughs> the, the uh, so yes, I have, I've hunted, uh, I started hunting with a compound bow that would have been in, uh, let me think, um, probably around 1984, maybe even 83. Um, I got a bow for my 16th birthday and, and I started hunting with it that fall. Uh, now it took me a few years to be successful, but I, when I got that bow, I was determined that I was going to hunt with just a bow until uh, I had success. And then I did hunt with a rifle for many years. Um, I've hunted with handguns. I've hunted with um, black powder. And, you know, even when I started hunting with traditional gear the first year or two, I hunted with traditional gear, and I I still picked up the rifle. But I will say, uh, the first the first deer I I successfully took with a longbow, I never looked back. I I, I haven't hunted with anything since then. Uh, most of the firearms I still own are are more personal defense than they are for hunting. I've sold most of my hunting weapons. There is, and I've talked about this a few times. I think at some point I'm going to want to. Um, take to the woods with a muzzleloader again. If I do, it will be something along the lines of a, um, a Tennessee long rifle or a Tennessee poor boy, poor boy style rifle, a flintlock, not percussion. Uh, and and I do think at some point I might pick up a handgun and, and hunt with a handgun again, but may never happen. I don't know. I've <laughs> thought about it a few times, but typically when I think about something like that, I'm I'm immediately pulled back to the longbow. <laughs> Fair enough. And so tell me about, I know you mentioned you want to talk about this and you did mention it briefly here, but um, you've kind of transitioned over to glass rods. Um, what was the motivation behind that? And what have you, what have you found? Like, it sounds like you, you really like it. You've been sticking with it. Um, what have you found differently between that and the graphite rods that I assume you were using before? 
so none none of none of my answers are simple, Katie. Um, no, that's fine. <laughs> I I, I need you to do the talking, so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned my first fly rod and, and getting started and teaching myself and. Uh, again, most of the listeners will have no idea what I'm talking about, but I actually saved uh, money for months, you know, money for, from birthday and, and any money I could scrape together. I think I actually went and, and returned uh, glass bottles when there used to be a um, uh, deposit that you could get back for glass bottles, that kind of thing. And I bought a, uh, I don't even remember what weight it was now, but I bought a fly rod from a, a department store called Gibson's that are no longer around it was glass it was heavy it was cumbersome uh but I, I learned how to fish with it and i think it had an old martin just a plain martin reel on it uh and over the years you know everybody went to graphite i picked up graphite rods i still own several graphite rods uh, i've got some saint croix i've got a, a temple fork uh, tcrx uh, lefty cray that i love and I still fish with them. As far as how I got into the glass rods, not long after we launched uh, the Traditional Outdoors podcast, I ran across Cameron Mortensen, the fiberglass manifesto, uh, bugged him by phone for weeks uh, because we were new. Um, you know, I, I pretty much felt like I had to assure him that the podcast was in it for the long, we were in it mm-hmm. for the long haul if we could just get him to come on the show. And really, that's what kind of opened the door back up to glass for me. I hadn't really thought about it until reading some of his uh, articles and then spending an hour talking to him. After that, I actually bought a, um, now I'm going to draw a blank on the name. Uh, It'll come to me in a minute. When it does, I'll throw it back out there. But he actually sells some cost-effective, I won't say cheap, cost-effective fly rods off his website. And we worked out a deal, and he sent me one. And I think it's a five weight. And I got out in the backyard, and I started casting it. And I was like, "This is not the fiberglass that I remembered." Uh, whether or not they, you know, they make the rods different or better, I, I honestly don't know. But it was definitely better than the than the fiberglass I remembered. And I took that rod out on the the Chattahoochee River, the tailwater here um, near Atlanta, and and had a blast with it. And I got out looking on some of the Facebook groups uh, for Fly Rod and ran across a guy that was selling one. Um, he was selling, if I remember correctly, it's a seven foot two weight, and I'd always wanted a, a two weight rod. I had a three, a four, and a five. Uh, anyway, we worked out a deal. I bought this seven foot two weight with a, an able reel that that he had he had he had built a rod, or I think as he and Cameron Mortensen called it, a he had rod putter togetherer for this thing so he had bought all the components and and built it off of blank and i care when he when i got that rod i the first place i did was carried it to a stream uh, about 30 minutes from my house called the amicalola it's a delayed harvest stream it's not a natural producing stream but they stock it uh and i just and it's some pretty quick water uh, in fact it's got some of the most dangerous uh whitewater rapids for uh rafting or canoeing rafting on the on the east coast but I hooked into a, I don't know, probably a 10, 11 inch trout on that two weight. And if somebody had had a camera on me, they would have probably made $10,000 because I was, I was laughing and giggling like a kid. <laughs> um, 
And what I found on top of that, so that, you know, a two-weight's a two-weight, right? When you get a, a decent fish and a decent stream on a two-weight, you're going to have fun. But I noticed that I was actually feeling the line in a lot of ways different than I had been able to feel the line with my fast graphite rods. I could feel the rod load. Um, I found that I was actually forming my loops better. Um, and in some cases, even getting more distance, in some cases, more distances, distance out of my, my cast with less effort because I was able to load that energy in the rod and take advantage of that. Um, flash forward another, I don't know, six months to a year, and I think now I've got two two-weight uh, glass rods. I've got an absolutely gorgeous uh, three-weight blue halo glass rod that I absolutely love. And I never thought anything would replace my three-weight St. Croix Legend Ultra, but it has. I really love fishing that rod. And then I've got a, I think I've got a five-weight, and uh, and I've got a four-weight. I had a, a custom four-weight built, too. So I still fish both, um, but I will tell you for most of the fishing here in the area that I, that I trout fish and fly fish the most, I pretty much pick up the, the glass rods whenever I head out. Um, after fishing out west a couple years ago, I don't know that I would... It would depend on what the weather was going to be if I took that. And if you want to get into that, we can. But um, for around here, man, I, I just... I love I love the glass rods. Yeah, we can we can get into the east-west thing, too. That was the other thing you wanted to, to bring up. I did have one more question about the glass before we get into that. Um, and that is when you, when you said that you had been fishing primarily glass, I assumed that was kind of from the traditional outdoors perspective. Um, you know, glass is, is just not not as recent as graphite, but it sounds more like you've kept up with it, not for, you know, trying to stick to any sort of, I don't know, template of, of what, cla- what classifies as traditional, but just just straight up because it's more fun. Is, is that pretty accurate? Uh, I would, well, yes and no. Okay. I think, I think, you know, the glass... The, that's probably the reason I reached out to Cameron and had him on the show. So I'll be first upright and, and honest and say, because of the traditional aspect, it's, it seemed like a great traditional, quote, old school topic to have a guy on talking mm-hmm. about glass rods. Uh, but after I started try- fishing with him, I was like, wow, there's something here. And, and again, you know, a buddy of mine, um, Derek Sheehan, who... He's the gentleman I was talking to you earlier before we started recording about the bamboo rods. Mm-hmm. He swears it's the same uh, mandrels that they use to form the rods on and everything's the same. Somebody's got to prove that to me because the rods that I've fished with, um, especially the the two two weights and the blue halo that my buddy Scott Spray, who was also on our show, built for me, those are just light years ahead of 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 the, the glass rods that I'd fished with in the past. Um, they're not as heavy. They're not as cumbersome. And there's a lot of finesse to these rods. Again, there are situations where I would pick up my, my, my five weight, um, graphite rod, especially my TFO is a very fast action rod. And there are some things like if I'm some of the streams up here, you know, you're casting, um, weighted sometimes tungsten, bead head woolly boogers to get down deep enough in some of these fast waters and that fast way to being able to really push that that rod and not you know knock yourself out with the that woolly booger when it flies past 
uh, I do reach for that rod for some of that type fishing, but man, I just really have a lot of fun with the glass rods. Yeah. And I, I remember when I was on your show, you had mentioned that you were, you were, your favorite way to fish was with streamers. Is that, is that still the case or has the fiberglass transition, uh, kind of turned you into a, like a dry fly fisherman? No, and I probably should, I'll clarify that statement. Um, I probably fish more with streamers than anything else. Okay. Uh, if, if there's a, and, and you got to understand that for the most part, the water that I fish here in the Southeast is a little bit different than some of the streams out West where if, if there's a hatch going on on these streams, in most cases, you don't, you just have to get close. You don't have to match what they're feeding on. Um, but there is nothing I enjoy more than seeing, you know, fish rise to a dry and, and I will fish those if there's a hatch going on and I'm seeing fish rising, but between fishing a streamer or a wet fly in most situations, I would much prefer the streamer because I'm more successful at it and tend to get, for the most part, I'll tend to catch, um, bigger and more aggressive fish on the, on the the streamer than I would with a dry, I mean a wet, excuse me, a wet fly or a nymph. I don't know if I trust someone who doesn't want to fish a dry fly when there's a hatch going on. Uh, you know, I sure wouldn't, but <laughs> I, I did want to make sure I made that clarifying point. No, no, it's just, I know you specified that like if there's a hatch going on, you use a dry and I'm just like, I know some people who wouldn't and I don't, I don't know if I really trust them <laughs> because there's just, there's just nothing quite like it. And, and there's just such a joy when you walk up to the river and you just see fish rising and you're, you're, you're like, I know exactly what I got to do here. And it's going to be just the most amazing experience. <laughs> and I will, I will add to that because there was a part that you asked there that I didn't answer. Um, and I, here's the best way I could explain it. I've got a three foot, excuse me, a three weight, uh, graphite and I got a, I have a three weight glass. I would say they're comparable in action. The glass may, I mean, the, the St. Croix is probably a little bit flat faster, but it's still a fairly slow action rod. If I was taking one of those to a stream, knowing I was going to fish with dry flies only, I don't think I would. I wouldn't make a I wouldn't make a choice of which rod I was going to fish with based on which one I could present the fly better with. Okay. So I think it at least in that case and that's probably the best comparison I have is with my three weights. From a presentation perspective, um you might have to adjust a little bit to get, you know, reacquainted with the the action of the rod, but as far as being able to present the fly, I can probably do pretty much the same with either rod. Um, in that case, I don't know that it would make that much difference, but you're definitely going to feel the fish more when you, when you start, um, land, fighting or landing a fish, I feel like more with the glass than you would do the graphite. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't, I don't have as much experience uh, at all with the fiberglass, but from the few times I've cast them and used them, I, c- I could definitely see that being the case. It's something I'd like to get more into. I'm hoping to, to build a glass rod in the hopefully this winter at some point when i'm when i'm stuck inside uh and i i'm i think what i would do is basically force myself just take it on every trip and just get used to it because i know there's going to be a bit of a learning curve in terms of making it work just as well or like you said it might not it i might not be even be choosing what what's the best way for me to present the fly but rather just taking that rotting and getting used to it and starting to appreciate it a little bit more well so the one thing i will tell you there based on my experience and i have not cast every 
fiberglass rod out there. But I have, I've picked up and tried quite a few over the course of the last 18 months. Um, cost to quality ratio, you're going to find it very hard to beat a blue halo rod. Those were some of the blanks I was looking at for sure. I know they sell uh, those blanks that you can you can just get and build. So that's definitely one of the ones on my list. I I absolutely love mine, and I, like I said, I've I've tried quite a few, and it's it's probably my favorite at this point. Perfect. Well, that's that's good to hear because <laughs> I, I want that glowing review for for what I'm considering. Um, well, if you if you get it and you decide you don't like it, just let me know. I'll probably buy it from you. All right, <laughs> that sounds like a deal. <laughs> Um, I know you mentioned your trip out west, and that was something you wanted to kind of talk about. Um, so, d- I guess just tell me about your trip out west and, and what you experienced different from fishing back east, because you're definitely more experienced on the east coast, and I'm more experienced on the west coast, but it sounds like we've dabbled a little bit in each other's uh, worlds in terms of fly fishing. Um, I fished spin rods back east a ton, but but never fly. So, um, t- tell me about your experience kind of comparing those two areas and, and what you liked about both, but what, how they differ. Um, anything you disliked? So, and after I mentioned this, I actually thought about part of this is going to be painful for me to actually admit, but uh, we'll talk about a couple of things first. Um, so I've actually fished out west twice. Uh, was out in Wyoming in 2016 on an antelope hunt. Um, after the, the hunt, Tom, my buddy Tom, who's what we call him our co-host at large, on the on the traditional outdoors podcast he shows up to co-host now and then but uh we we spent uh two and a half to three days just actually riding through we rode through the bighorn mountains we drove through the crow indian nation we drove through the badlands um we spent a good bit of time as we made our way back to the east coast uh sightseeing but we also stopped a lot especially driving through the bighorns if we saw a a stream that we, you know, we thought might hold fish in it, we got out and fished it. And most of these were, I would say they were comparable to what we fish here on the on the East Coast. Not a lot of difference. Small mountain streams, a um, lot, of, lot of overhead branches and a lot of, you know, a lot of cover that you have to cast to. And on that trip, I think we both ended up catching a couple of fish and that was it. But we didn't fish a lot. I mean, we, we, we would stop and fish for 15, 20 minutes and then, hop back in the, in the car and, and drive. In 2018, we went out for a mule deer, uh, self-guided mule deer hunt. We spent a week in the Bighorns, um, nine to 10,000 feet elevation for the bulk of the week. We hunted in the morning, we hunted in the afternoon, and all during the midday, most days we spent fly fishing. So that was really my first real um, uh, experience fly fishing out west and a couple of things that uh, I would I would say is a lot different we don't we don't have many streams where you don't have to worry about how you're where you're casting a lot of the water that we found when we were fishing out west you're not I mean if you get if you if you manage to snag something you're really doing something wrong because there's you know there's nothing overhanging the water the, the edges of the stream are, are mostly tall grasses. Uh, so from that aspect, I liked it a lot better because I could just get out and freely cast. I didn't have to constantly look at, you know, where's my where's my back cast going? What's, what am I, if it's back there, I'm going to snag it. So I didn't have that worry all the time. The part that's hard for me to admit, 
Tom is one of the best. And I've, I've fished with Tom a little bit, but never in a situation like this. Without a doubt, he's one of the best fly casters I've ever been around. Uh, I sat there and watched him cast a three-weight into very stiff winds that left me just humbled. And, I mean, it was amazing. I, I could have sat there and watched him for hours because he made it look effortless. Uh, he would present the fly pretty much where he wanted to, even in those strong winds. Uh, anyway, I, 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 I was extremely humbled by that. But at the same time, thinking about the rods that I like to use, I definitely see where the graphite faster action rod was better in that scenario than I would have been with a, a slow action glass rod at least with the way I cast it would have been not saying you can't do it not saying someone that's a better caster than I am could probably do it not have any problem but for me in that scenario I was glad that that Tom had brought a a faster action rod uh and I tried just not to cast a lot when Tom was watching me (laughs) was that because of the wind that you were kind of preferring that graphite rod or something else yes because again the in a lot of the scenarios you were you were either casting in some cases into the wind in some cases you were casting with a a fairly strong crosswind um and we managed to catch quite a few trout of the course of that week we we didn't all of it was catch and release we didn't keep anything but we we caught a lot of fish and for the most part we were mostly um we weren't necessarily drifting or or you know um doing a lot of loop cast and those the, or roll cast it was mostly you know just normal um normal casting and and i do think a slower rod at least i again i didn't try it because all we had was the fast action but i just remember thinking i'm glad we've got a faster action rod that really allows me to to, to kind of push this line and keep a very tight loop now i do have to kind of burst your bubble here and let you know that uh those nice meadow streams that are mostly just grass. That's not the, uh, (laughs) the only thing we have out here. I feel like the majority of the small streams I fish, especially when it's something like that, where, um, like I took a rod on, on my last hunt too, and took some casts. And especially here in Colorado, we have a lot of like just little willows around the streams. And, um, there was one, one stream I got caught in a couple years ago where I was just walking up the the stream itself because there wasn't enough room on the bank. And eventually the, the willows growing over it got so tight that I couldn't even walk up the, the stream itself. Uh, it, there, there was nowhere to go. I was just fit, like feeding my the tip of my rod through the branches and just letting the fly fall onto the water wherever the end of my rod was because there was no way to even do like a roll cast in there. So um, especially if you're above tree line, you can get those like wonderful streams that uh, you can just cast as far as the eye can see. But um, unfortunately, that's not how it is the entire way around the West. And, and, and I would, and I did know that. So, you know, the streams that we fished in 2016 were, were a lot, like I said, they were a lot more, um, similar to what I fish here in, in the Southeast. Mm. I will say we had so much water out there in 2018. We didn't have to fish those streams. <laughs> so, sure. so we stayed in the ones that were, you know, what? actually, now that I think about it, we did have one stream that was uh, fairly close to our second camp uh, that we we did fish that one a good bit and it had a lot more cover but for some reason it was and it's obviously it's because it's not what I'm used to and it was a different experience those meadow streams were just a blast for me to fish I, I've seen them in you know in magazines and stuff like that but I'd never actually gotten to fish one so it obviously left a stronger impression 
Yeah, those are some of the most fun. Um, the co combination of having nothing hindering your cast and having those like deep undercut banks around the bends and having that the stream that just meanders through a meadow um, where you if you walk straight you'll you'll cross the stream like every twenty feet as it as it curves right. around again. Um, I feel like you can fit many miles of stream into into a smaller uh, smaller area just because they they wind and bend so much. Um, and if I could build my my dream stream, it would be something like that where it's just wide open and and deep cut banks and riffles every so often. And th there's definitely not a shortage of those out west, but you do have to go find them. Well, I've, I've fished both, and if I went out there again, I think I would try to find those meta streams again. <laughs> well, and it's funny you mentioned back east because, like I said, I grew up fishing back east, but I had a larger river where I grew up, so I was usually fishing that, and I don't have as much experience on those smaller streams, although I, I've definitely seen them. Um, but at the time, I didn't fly fish, and I just feel like it wasn't conducive to, to tossing a lure with a spin rod into some of those really small creeks like I, I mean the fish i'd be catching are probably the size of some of the lures i was using in the in the river that i fished so i definitely want to make it back at some point to those eastern streams and, and give fly fishing a try there well if you ever make it this way let me know i'd, I'd be happy to at least at least carry you to some of the ones i know uh you know the chattahoochee uh which i do fish a good bit it there are definitely places you have to focus on your back cast, but there's a lot more water on that river that you don't. Once you get out, you know, in the river, you can, you can do whatever you want. But a lot of the mountain streams that I fish, uh, which is one of the reasons I love these little two weights. I mean, and I've got a six foot two weight that I really like the little small streams. But you're not really casting. You're 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 crawling on your hands and knees, and you're you're you know you're presenting a fly with at best a a small roll cast you're 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 not doing overhead casting or even side sidearm casting yeah just kind of dapping it down on the on the surface in exactly. front of you while you hide <laughs> exactly well steve um we can start to get wrapped up here but um before we hop off do you just want to share a little bit about uh your show i know you mentioned in in the packet i sent you the traditional outdoors as well as uh simply traditional and i don't know if i'm familiar with simply traditional um, so if you want to fill everyone in on, on both, but I, I'm also curious sure, what Simply Traditional is. Sure. So, uh, Simply Traditional actually started out as a, as a blog. Um, in fact, if anyone wants to, um, read the full article around a hunter will understand it's on the simplytraditional.net website. Um, it's actually been in a couple of different uh, small publications, but it's it's there as well. But it started as a blog. I'll be honest with everything that that I have going on. I don't I don't write as much anymore as I used to. I probably should, and I I really don't want to lose the 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 skills that I had learned while doing that. But um, it's mostly a, a blog, but I also run a small storefront on there that over the years has really turned into more of a business around um, making custom Flemish twist bowstrings, which is a whole nother discussion. But I make a lot of bowstrings for um, both customers, and I've got several um, fairly large boyers that make their living making traditional longbows and recurves that I make their bowstrings for them. Um, and it's it's Flemish twist strings. You'd have to see them, but there's uh, it's 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 almost like a, a rope making technique where you build the loops for each end to fit over the end of the bow. But there's no knots or anything like that in the in the strings. It's 
it basically friction holds everything together once you get the string built. So I, I make a lot of custom bowstrings, um, and that's my pri my primary um, storefront for that is simply traditional.net. Um, the spinoff from that was what became Traditional Outdoors, which is a website. There is the podcast, the tr Traditional Outdoors podcast. Uh, I also have a, a YouTube channel for Traditional Outdoors that you can find just by searching YouTube. Uh, I do plan and have a lot of good ideas around uh, video content. Right now, uh, it's just a matter of time, especially right now with, with uh, archery season being open. I'm, I'm really going to be pushing myself throughout the course of this season and then starting into uh, 2021 of of really focusing in and getting busy and putting more content out on, on YouTube. But uh, there are articles on the Traditional Outdoors website as well, uh, some other articles that I've run across that are uh, linked from other websites. So there's, there's, there's a good bit of content on the Traditional Outdoors website as well, but it's primarily uh, used for the publication of the podcast. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to go check out that, um, that article, the, uh, only a hunter would understand. Cause I, like I said, I've heard the story twice now and I'm still not overhearing it. So I have to go read the whole, the whole story there, but, um, it was such a pleasure talking to you tonight. I really love like what you're going for with your podcast and just getting to talk to you and kind of appreciate the, the simpler parts of what we like to do. Um, cause like I said, I feel like there's a lot of people out there who, whether they realize it or not, that's what they're chasing. Um, not the fish. So, uh, I just had such a great time hearing from you and, and can't wait to hear what the rest of your podcast has in store. Well, you know what, Katie, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, thank you again so much for actually being a guest, uh, on our show a few months back. And, you know, if you ever, if you ever want to get on here and talk again, you're always welcome to, to hop back on our show anytime. And I'm more than happy to hop back on here and talk with you in the future. So I, I always have a good time talking to you. Well, I'll never turn down getting to hop on and talk fishing with somebody. So I might take you up on that. All right. Well, I'll be looking forward to it. All right, Steve. Take care. You too. All right. And that is all. As always, if you liked what you heard, I'd love for you to go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts and subscribe there. Uh, if you've got a couple extra minutes, a rating or review would also be much appreciated. It doesn't take too long, and it makes a big difference on my end. You can also find all my episodes on fishuntamed.com in addition to fly fishing articles every two weeks. And you can find me on social media under my name, Katie Burgert, on Go Wild or at Fish Untamed on Instagram. And I will see you all back here in two weeks. Bye, everyone.